Cottywomple with the Shadow People is a narrative podcast about friendship, magic, mystery, and the divine feminine. This podcast sometimes deals with topics of a sensitive nature, so listener discretion is advised. Content warning. This episode contains mentions of sexual abuse. Malady rides a horse, wide as the coat a doctor might wear. Want does what he can to tip the black scales of injustice in his favor. Death rides a pale carriage over the ashes of iniquity. Revenge rides a horse stained with the blood of men who have wronged her. And her sister, the personification of grace, rides a gray steed that cottywomples with the shadow people. Episode 10, The Blood Mother. Rhiannon was not from around here. She was from a place that most of the respectable folks in town would never dare venture. No, not the Chateau. The townsfolk may say that they never go to the Chateau, but we all know that's not true. No, Rhiannon was not a shadow person or a moon woman. She was from the Mountain of Blood, and as far as the townsfolk were concerned, she was not to be trusted. But seeing as she was the mayor's wife, she was to be tolerated. No one really knew when or why the feud between the Holler and the Mountain of Blood began. They just knew that it would probably never end. The townsfolk saw the Blood people as wicked murderers and horse thieves and the blood people considered all of the citizens of the holler as corrupt shadow people, not just the ones who lived on the outskirts. Every few years, the distrust between the two communities would escalate to full-blown conflicts. It would start out small. A bad business deal or a small slight would lead to a verbal altercation. The verbal altercations would become physical. Then there would be clandestine late-night excursions to vandalize or burn down homes and businesses. Eventually, the conflicts would erupt into deadly battles. When one or both sides decided that they had lost too many people, the mayors of the towns would meet on neutral ground and negotiate a tense truce. After the last great battle, Mayor Paul was surprised to see that the blood mayor was accompanied by his two daughters at the neutral meeting spot. During negotiations, the normally level-headed and diplomatic Paul found himself distracted by the oldest daughter. She sat by her father's side with a peaceful smile that contradicted her younger sister's stern glare. The oldest daughter seemed to stare into Paul's soul with her steel-gray eyes. When Mayor Paul returned to the holler, the citizens were surprised to see him walking beside a silver horse that carried a young, mysterious, gray-eyed woman who smiled like a cat in the dark. Some folks believe that this love match was necessary for the peace between the two communities. Others believe that the blood woman had used her wicked wiles to ensnare the good-natured mayor. But regardless of what theory they subscribed to, everyone in town agreed that she was not to be trusted. Well, almost everyone. 
the shadow people felt differently. The water women of the West didn't care much for politics. The folks who lived in the shacks thought that Rhiannon was nice enough, and the moon women found it hypocritical to judge strangers since they themselves were strange. Mayor Paul and Rhiannon were married at the crossroads under the pink moon, with the whole town in attendance. Paul's brother, Lucian Morgenstern, stood beside him as his best man, and his oldest friend and mother to his niece, Diana, was Rhiannon's maid of honor. Both of the women cried that day, but for completely different reasons. After the toasts were given, Paul and Rhiannon danced for what seemed like hours. The conspiratorial whispers of the townsfolk and the ethereal whispers of the dead were drowned out by a string quartet as the newlyweds gazed lovingly into each other's eyes. The couple had a happy marriage. He never denied her anything, and she never asked for much. She did ask him to build her a stable for her horse, but that was a request he was more than happy to oblige, though he was always a little wary of horses. Her silver steed, Epona, was her closest companion, so he hired repairman Jesse to build the best stable possible. Paul was a bit of a slob, so a lot of the housework fell to Rhiannon, but she didn't mind. She loved keeping a tidy, peaceful home. The first time Rhiannon tried to cook for her husband, she almost burnt the house down. So Paul decided it would be best if he cooked the meals from then on. Rhiannon never fussed at him for spending his Sundays fishing, and Paul never got annoyed with her horse-riding long into the afternoon. While she was pregnant with their first child, he pampered her and hardly let her lift a finger. And when she had their beautiful daughter Tara, who had green eyes like her father and a serene smile like her mother, they never argued about how the child should be raised. This happy match may have seemed a bit too happy to the cynical outsider, but their joy was real and palpable to anyone who spent time with them. They were two people-pleasers who were married to people who were easy to please. But as content as they were, and as peaceful as the marriage was, that did not stop the town from gossiping about the woman. The words horse-thief, witch, and whore followed her around town like a bad smell. The highfalutin ladies in town never invited her to brunch or to a bridge game, so she chose to socialize at the chateau with the moon women. Even after the moon women scattered to the winds, she still visited Minerva and played chess with Hecate. Her three biggest detractors in town were Miss Junie Jupiter, Dr. Adam, and Sheriff Hopkins. Junie took every chance she could to trash talk Rhiannon. She criticized her blood heritage, she ridiculed her unkempt appearance, she made fun of her love of horses and liked to say that she smelled like one. Mrs. Jupiter hoped that no one could sense the sour grapes behind the nasty words. She was always secretly angry that Paul got married before Aphrodite, the matchmaker, could set him up with her. Sure, he may have been a little older than her, but May-December marriages weren't that uncommon. Dr. Adam never liked her. Thirteen years after the birth of her daughter, Rhiannon unexpectedly got pregnant with a son. Though her first pregnancy wasn't too difficult, 
the birth itself was. So difficult, in fact, she and Paul assumed that they couldn't have any more children. So they were pleasantly surprised when a little gray-eyed boy, whom they called Leo, came along. She trusted her good friend Minerva to deliver the baby more than she trusted the young doctor. So she chose to call the midwife, and Adam never forgave this insult. Her biggest enemy in town was Sheriff Haim Hopkins. Sheriff Hopkins was an intimidating man who was as wide as he was tall. He was perpetually smirking, but his smile never reached his glassy eyes. His idea of law and order was keeping petty criminals and harmless rule-breakers behind bars, while keeping himself in the pockets of people whom he called fine, upstanding ne'er-do-wells. If he caught someone who was a bit too drunk and stumbling their way home on a Friday night, he'd throw them in the town jail for a whole weekend. But when he received an anonymous tip that the good doctor may have intentionally poisoned a young girl, he refused to look into it. And after receiving hush money in an envelope that was slipped under his door, he even helped spread the word that the deadly herbs from the chateau's garden caused the young woman's death. He did this discreetly, of course. He'd never admit it, but the moon women terrified him. If a man was caught stealing a bit of food to feed himself or his family, he would be locked away for days or even weeks. But if a worker from the factory on the south side of town came to the sheriff's office to report the brutal, inhumane work conditions, Hopkins would look the other way. And in some extreme cases, if the price was right, he would make sure that the worker disappeared. If any person in town irked the sheriff in any way, he would punish them at his discretion. But whenever he was called to the Morning Star Inn for a brawl or some low-life manhandling one of the ladies who worked there, he would leave as soon as Morgenstern greased his already slimy palms. Sometimes, instead of arresting the man who hurt or harassed one of the ladies, he would arrest the injured working girl if Morgenstern thought she needed to be taught a lesson. He was quite put out when the Morning Star Inn was burnt down. It was his biggest cash cow. The only thing he loved more than the power that his badge gave him was the chaos that ensued whenever the holler and the mountain of blood reignited their feud. He had been sheriff for a long time, and he had seen his fair share of battles. He loved how scared the townsfolk got whenever a conflict broke out. Scared people were easier to control. He also loved when the conflicts would escalate to all-out wars. It gave him an excuse to use his gun. The second he heard the news that Paul was going to wed a blood woman, he knew that the mayor would not allow any more battles between his wife's people and his own. And he was right. Even though the feud wasn't technically over, there had not been a full-blown fight between the two communities in 15 years. He also didn't like the effect that the blood woman had on the mayor. He always thought that the man was already too much of a pansy ass. But once she came into the picture, he began to soften even more. A few weeks after his marriage, Mayor Paul told Sheriff Hopkins to ease up on his tactics. Maybe you should just make sure that the drunks get home safely instead of throwing them in the clink, and we don't need to be putting working girls away if they ain't done nothing wrong. This steel-eyed temptress had taken away his power bit by bit. 
As the sheriff, he would never speak out publicly against the mayor's wife, but he carried a burning hate for her that he let fester inside of him for over a decade, and he was waiting for the opportune moment to release it. Despite earning the animosity of almost everyone in town, Rhiannon was determined to be happy. She found joy in little pleasures. Her greatest little pleasures were the picnics she'd have with her two-year-old son while her husband was at work and her daughter was at school. Every day she would pack a lunch, get Epona ready for a ride, situate Leo on the saddle, and trot to her favorite little meadow on the west side of town, just about a mile away from the river. Epona knew to trot softly whenever a child rode upon her. On one particularly tranquil day, they arrived to their spot in the meadow and dismounted Epona. As she set her son down, she noticed that his nose started bleeding. He was prone to nosebleeds, just as she was and just as everyone was back at home on the mountain. Many people thought that the mountain of blood got its name for some violent, nefarious reason. In truth, it was just because everyone who lived on the mountain suffered from random nosebleeds. She cleaned the boy up, not minding the blood that stained the sleeve of her dress. She then pulled a large blanket from her picnic basket and spread it out on the grass before sitting the toddler down upon it. While she prepared the picnic, she heard a loud snap in the forest as if a large branch had broken off of a tree. In less than a moment after hearing the sound, she realized that she forgot to tie Epona's reins to a tree. And before she could rectify her mistake, the spooked gray horse had shot off in the direction where they had come from. Rhiannon chased after the steed, grateful that she did not run in the direction of the forest. The blood woman knew that she would not be able to physically catch the horse, but if she got close enough, Epona would hear her rider's command. She ran as fast as she could, and when she felt like she was close enough, she held her fingers up to her mouth and let out a loud whistle. <coughs> Epona stopped immediately, sliding a bit on the dirt. Rhiannon walked up to her while simultaneously trying to catch her breath. She stroked the horse's mane and nose to calm her, before grabbing her reins and leading her back to the meadow. Thankfully, they had not run too far. Her relief of catching her beloved horse was short-lived, because once she returned, she saw that no gray-eyed boy sat waiting for her on the picnic blanket. She scanned the meadow for any sign of her son, but there was no trace of him anywhere. She felt her heart drop into her stomach and panic crawl up her spine. She called out Leo's name until she nearly lost her voice. She ran all around the meadow, searching behind every rock and tree. She ran to the forest's edge, hoping against hope that he did not wander onto the woodsy path. He was too young to remember the rules. And the forest was not above taking children. That thought alone made her crumple to the ground in anguish. She was at a loss for what to do. The only thing she could do was muster up what little strength she had left to mount Epona and ride back to the center of town to find her husband. When she reached town hall, she dismounted Epona and tied her reins to the gate. She was not going to repeat her earlier mistake. She ran to the building, crying out for her husband. Paul! Paul! Upon hearing his wife's cries, Paul ran out of his office towards the front hall with Sheriff Hopkins following closely behind. Rhiannon figured they must have been in a meeting, but she didn't have time to think about that. 
As Paul made his way to her, she collapsed into his arms. He held her close, begging her to tell him what was wrong. He's gone! Leo is gone! Paul asked her what she meant as he pulled her into his office with the sheriff following him. She sat down, and the events of the ill-fated picnic came tumbling out of her between gasps and sobs. Her husband held her and tried to calm her down. He couldn't have gotten far, sweetheart. We'll get a search party together, and I'll bet we'll find him before the day is done. As Paul comforted her, the sheriff silently regarded her for a few moments before asking her, Why did you chase after the horse rather than staying with your child? Paul glared at the sheriff's accusatory tone, but Rhiannon answered, I couldn't let my horse run wild into the town. What if she accidentally trampled somebody? I thought your horse was domesticated. I did not realize you had a wild horse who trampled people. Of course she's domesticated, but she was spooked, and spooked horses can be dangerous. So you let dangerous animals near your children? Hopkins, that's enough. Paul tried to interject, but the sheriff persisted. And I can't help but notice that there's blood on your sleeve. Is that blood from your boy? Rhiannon looked down at her sleeve. Leo had a nosebleed earlier. That seems like a lot of blood for a nosebleed. Obviously, you never had to handle a child with a bloody nose before. Hopkins, will you please stop harassing my wife and go form a search party for my son? I'm afraid I can't do that, Mayor. You see, I'm not sure that there will be a boy to find. Not a living one, anyway. And between your wife's dubious account and the blood on her dress that she admitted was your son's, I have reason to bring her in for more questioning. As Hopkins pulled out handcuffs, Paul stood between him and Rhiannon. I'm not letting you arrest my wife. Then how would it look to the constituents if you gave special treatment to the blood woman who likely killed your son? Paul clenched his fist and pulled back to strike the man, but Rhiannon stood in front of him to stop him. Paul, you know I never hurt Leo, but he's right. You can't afford to fall out of favor with the town and embolden your brother to run against you again. And with that, she kissed him as the sheriff placed the cuffs on her wrists. He walked her out of the building, and eventually all the eyes of the people walking along the street turned to stare at the blood woman being taken into custody. The jail was a block away from the town hall, but the trek felt like an a thousand-day journey for Rhiannon. The stairs turned to whispers, and then the whispers turned to jeers. When they finally made it to the jail, Sheriff Hopkins threw her into a cell that was located right next to his desk. There were three other cells in the building that were filled to the brim with drunkards, vagrants, and other people whom Hopkins found irksome but she had a cell all to herself. Neither the sheriff nor any of his officers spoke to her for the rest of the day. She started to notice that the other jailbirds were gradually being released one by one. Every thirty minutes or so, one of the deputies would come by and let one of the inmates go free. After a while, Rhiannon realized that she was all alone with the sheriff and a few of his cronies, and an uneasy feeling began to wash over her. She watched the little light that came through her cell's small window begin to darken and dim as the sun set. 
She sat on her cold, hard bench and stared straight at the wall, making a concerted effort not to look at the cruel sheriff who sat at his desk. She listened as each of the officers shouted their goodbyes and left. She felt cruel eyes gazing at her. The air between them was as thick as molasses. After what seemed like hours, the sheriff broke the silence. So why'd you do it? Rhiannon would not dignify the question with a response. Was this your plan all along? Infiltrate the town by marrying the mayor and wait for the opportune moment to strike? Is this how you and your bloody ilk reignite the feud? Were you planning on killing your entire family or just the weakest member? I did not hurt my son. I would never hurt my children. Of course not. You would just abandon them to chase after a horse. You like horses, don't you? Hopkins stood up from his desk and walked over to her cell, grasping the bars. I'm sure all you horse thieves over on the Mountain of Blood know everything about horses. He took out his keys and unlocked the cell. She briefly considered making a run for it, but she knew she could not make it past him. His cruel taunts continued. I see you riding your horse every afternoon. The way you ride her makes me wonder. He let his ever-looming question hang in the air as he locked the cell behind him and made his way over to the bench. She pushed her back into the wall, wishing that the stone would swallow her whole. He put one hand on the wall above her head and one hand on her knee. She tried to push the hand off her with her cuffed wrist, but it was no use. She squeezed her eyes shut and felt his disgusting breath on her as he asked, What other things do you ride? At some point during the night, the sheriff left, but Rhiannon wasn't sure when. She had forced her mind to go elsewhere so that she wouldn't be fully present while he did what countless tyrants did to people who made them feel powerless. It wasn't the pain that resulted from the violence that was causing her anguish in the present moment. She could handle pain. It was knowing that if by some miracle she was found innocent in the public trial on Friday, no one would believe that the sheriff had taken such cruel liberties with her. She thought about all the working girls who had been locked up in these cells and how many of them were hurt in the same way. She thought about her poor son, what if he wandered into the forest and the trees took him? If that was the case, she hoped that she was found guilty so that the vindictive townsfolk could put her out of her misery. She didn't want to live without her boy. She didn't want to live knowing that her husband and daughter might start to believe the worst of her. The sun began to shine through her window. As the room got brighter, the outside world started to bleed into her cell through shouts and jeers. She stood up to look out her window to see what all the commotion was about. She saw a crowd of angry people shouting horrible things up at her. Hang her! Kill the blood mother! She moved away from the window and tried to cover her ears to silence the terrible words. She did not know how long she sat like that with her eyes closed tight and her ears barely covered. She must have dozed off at some point because she was awakened by a loud bang on the bars of her cell. She looked up to see the sheriff with a shit-eating grin on his face. He sat at his desk for the rest of the day, 
and did not speak a word to her. As her cell once again grew dark, and she heard the officers leave, the fear started crawling up the back of her neck. She stared at the ground as he unlocked the cell. I know this town usually holds their public trials on Fridays, but this town wants blood. We may have to bump your trial up to Wednesday. She squeezed her eyes closed as he approached her once again. The next day, Rhiannon glanced out the window again. There were less people shouting for her head, but they were just as loud. She just stared at them, numb to their words. Eventually, they all dispersed when they became uneasy with her stare. She spent the rest of the day looking out the window since she didn't have anything else to do. She saw that scuttlebutt woman, Junie Jupiter, wearing a tan dress and pushing a pram towards the department store. She noted that the woman looked a bit more pale and sickly than she normally did. She was snapped out of her observation by the sound of the voice that she had grown to despise. Turns out I was right. The town wants to move your trial to tomorrow morning. Rhiannon stared ahead blankly, refusing to react to his words. Your husband is on his way to see you. This got her attention. If you try to be smart and tell him anything that happened here, he pulled a small knife from his pocket, I will slit him from ear to ear and tell everyone that you did it. Do you understand? She nodded. Do you want your daughter to be an orphan? She shook her head. Good. A few minutes later, Paul came bursting into the room. They tried to embrace through the bars, but the cuffs made it difficult. Have they found him yet? Not yet, but we know he's not in the forest. Me, Jesse, and some folks at the chateau combed every inch of the woods. And Aradia assured me that the fox told her that he hadn't seen him. The sheriff's stern face became puzzled by that last sentence. So that means he couldn't have wandered too far, right? That's what we're hoping. I sent Tara to stay at the chateau for a few days. Don't worry, Aradia told me that she would keep her away from the fourth floor. Rhiannon tried to smile at the half-joke, but the glint of the pocket knife in the sheriff's hand was distracting her. So the trial is tomorrow morning? Yes, but don't worry. I ain't gonna let anyone in town lay a finger on you. If they want to hang me, it would be an abuse of your mayoral power to oppose them. You can't alienate your voting base. Paul glared, and for the first time in their 16 years of marriage, Rhiannon heard him raise his voice. I don't give a good goddamn about a town who would hurt my family. My brother can have them for all I care. Sheriff Hopkins smirked and his ears perked up. Should I take that as your resignation, Mr. Mayor? In spite of her position, Rhiannon spoke sternly to her captor. No, you should not. Then she turned back to her husband, and in a softer voice, she said, Without you, this town has no moral backbone. Don't worry about me right now. Just find our boy. The mayor kissed his wife through the bars before taking his leave. Rhiannon was relieved when the sheriff did not follow him. She was worried about her husband being alone with a man who had threatened to kill him just moments before he arrived. As she watched him slip the knife into his pocket, she asked a question that had been weighing heavily on her mind. Do you really think I killed my own child, Sheriff? 
the sheriff regarded her with a raised eyebrow. I wouldn't put it past a blood woman to do something like that. That doesn't answer my question. Forget where I came from for just a moment and tell me honestly. Do you think I would actually hurt my child? Do you think I deserve to hang for something that I did not do? The sheriff walked up to the bars that separated them. Rhiannon fought the impulse to back away. She wanted to stand her ground. She wanted him to know that he had not destroyed her spirit just yet. She tried not to shiver in repulsion as he looked her up and down. You know, if it weren't for those blood stains on your sleeves, I would not have a justifiable reason for bringing you in. Stains ruin everything, don't they? They can make the finest linen worthless. I hate stains. I hate them on my clothes. I hate them on my tablecloth. And I hate stains in my town. Now, if your pansy-ass husband would let me do my job correctly, I could eradicate those stains. All of those drunken stains. All of them thieving stains. All of those shadowy stains. If it were up to me, there would be no whores and witches at the chateau. There would be no water women. And there would certainly be no blood harlot as the town's first lady. So to answer your question, I don't give a damn what you did with the kid. I'm just seizing a golden opportunity to get rid of our town's biggest blood stain. The sheriff pushed himself off the bars and walked towards the door. Before leaving, he looked back and said, It's too bad about that nosebleed, ain't it? And with that, he left Rhiannon in stunned silence. The next morning, Rhiannon was escorted to the steps of Town Hall to plead her case. Though she was pretty sure that even if she did get a chance to speak her truth, the angry townsfolk would just drown her out with their jeers. The deputy who was escorting her led her to a platform at the top of the stairs that had a giant chain and manacle anchored to the center of it. The deputy clasped the manacle around her ankle. She was grateful to be wearing a long, thick dress so that the town could not see the bruises on her thighs that had accumulated over the past three nights. Then again, maybe the town should see evidence of what a monster their sheriff was. Mayor Paul stepped up to the podium next to the platform to address the crowd, but before he could speak, the sheriff clasped a giant hand on his shoulder. Now, Mayor, I think it would be best if you did not adjudicate today's trial. It's a conflict of interest since the victim is your son and the accused is your wife. Paul tried to protest, but the sheriff just pushed him to the side before taking his place at the podium and addressing the crowd. He laid out the charges against her and did what he could to poke holes in the story she initially told him. As he spoke, the crowd erupted into a chorus of murderer and hang her. A few of them even threw rotten vegetables at her. He managed to calm them down before turning to the accused and asking if she had anything to say for herself. She opened her mouth to warn the town of the sheriff's horrible plans for the denizens whom he saw as stains. But she chose to stay silent. This town would never believe her, so she would retain what little dignity she had left 
and accept her punishment, no matter how unjust it was. Well, if you won't defend yourself, then I have no choice but to find you. Wait, stop! On the other side of the crowd rang the shrieking voice of Rhiannon's niece, Aradia. We found the boy! We found Leo! He's all right! The crowd parted, making a path for the storm woman and the mysterious lady who walked behind her, carrying a small boy. When they got to the steps, Aradia stepped aside so that the mysterious lady could step up and face the crowd. The woman had deep blue eyes like the sea and long, brassy blonde hair that was braided and piled on top of her head. Her face was lined with age, but the lines did nothing to mar her almost otherworldly beauty. She propped the gray-eyed boy on her hip and addressed the crowd. My name is Melusine. I am one of the women who run the orphanage by the river on the west side of town. A few days ago, the water women found this boy wandering not too far from our home. We assumed he was orphaned or abandoned, so naturally we took him in. We did not realize that he was the mayor's missing child. We did not even know the child was missing because we prefer to stay out of politics. As you can all see, the child is alive and unharmed. So if you would be so kind as to unchain this good lady so that we may reunite mother and child. The sheriff was too stunned to move, so Paul grabbed his keys and went to free his wife. After she was unchained, he embraced her and then moved to collect their son. As they descended the stairs, the sheriff grabbed Rhiannon's arms and whispered menacingly, This isn't over. She shot him a knowing grin and responded, Of course not. Not yet, anyway. She gathered her son in her arms and thanked the woman named Melusine profusely. She then turned to Aradia and whispered something in her ear. Aradia nodded obediently and took off in the direction of the chateau. The blood mother then looked out into the silent crowd. She had nothing to say to them. She owed them nothing. So she smiled her usual serene smile and walked down the path that the parted crowd had made. She did not want to head home just yet. She had to stop by the post office first. The next morning, Sheriff Hopkins was buzzing with anxiety, certain that the blood mother would tell her husband what he had done to her. Mayor Paul had not shown up to the jailhouse with a shotgun yet, so he felt safe in the assumption that she had not said anything. He decided to pay her a visit. He knew that Paul was not going to be at town hall for long since he wanted to spend as much time with his family as he could, so he'd have to go now. He took off towards the mayor's house, but when he arrived, he was surprised to see that he was not the only one paying Rhiannon a visit. Minerva, Lilith, Aradia, Hecate, Persephone, and Tara were all standing with Rhiannon in her front yard. When he was close enough, he could hear Minerva, the old midwife, tell her that she had left a hot cup of ginger root tea on the kitchen table. He could hear Lilith tell her that if the ginger root does not work, she could stop by the chateau for Pennyroyal free of charge. When he got closer, they all stopped talking and stared him down. Hecate broke the silence by assuring Rhiannon that they had covered every inch of her property. Hopkins wondered what the crossroads girl meant by that 
but he had more pressing matters that he was concerned with. Rhiannon smiled her serene smile at the sheriff before handing Leo to Tara and telling her to go inside. Do you need us to stay with you, Aunt Rhiannon? Aradia asked her. No, I'll be quite all right. Y'all run along now. The shadow women left, all glaring daggers at the man. He couldn't help but notice that when Aradia glared at him, he could hear thunder off in the distance. Rhiannon just kept smiling. Good afternoon, Sheriff. Can I offer you some lemonade? Uh, no, no thank you. He tried to take a few steps forward, but found that he could not. I, uh, I came by to see how I was doing. Or were you here to see if I told my husband about what you did to me? Hopkins glared. You better. I better what? Keep my mouth shut? Don't worry, Sheriff. Your dirty little secret is safe. He was baffled by her demeanor as well as his inability to move forward. So he muttered an all right then and then turned to leave. You know what my father always said about me, Sheriff? He turned around, slightly intrigued. He said that from the moment I was born, I was the epitome of grace. I never fussed or threw tantrums. I never argued much when I got older. When I did get in trouble, I accepted my punishments with grace. My father praised this virtue, but he was worried. He was worried that I would not stand up for myself. He was scared that my graciousness would get me hurt. So he raised my younger sister, Raven, to be the epitome of vengeance. So I would always be protected. As we got older, she took this role very seriously. She promised me that if anyone ever hurt me, they would be taken care of quickly and painfully. I sent her a letter yesterday, and I've already heard back. She giggled and stepped closer to him, but not too close before whispering, Your days are numbered, Sheriff. I suggest you get your affairs in order and make peace with the crossroads. He moved to strike her, but found he could still not move forward. This made Rhiannon laugh louder. What's the matter, Sheriff? Did your mama never teach you to bury wards on your property to keep unwanted guests away? She walked towards her house and turned back to say, I'd say it's been nice knowing you, Sheriff, but I don't like to lie. Cottywomple with the Shadow People was created by Shay Lee and edited by Jonathan Strickland. Special thanks to Lucas Ryan and Jenny Milam. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Be sure to check out Moon Chasers, the other podcast I host with my friend and beta reader Jenny Milam and our other friend Ursula Undress. Moon Chasers is a podcast where we talk about tarot, movies, books, feminism, astrology, and all things witchy, sometimes with wine. You can also check out the podcast that my editor and dear friend Jonathan hosts with our other friend, Ariel Caston, called Large Nerdron Collider. 
Listen to two charming nerds talk about the geeky things that make their hearts happy. Also, I wanted to thank my lovely listeners for patiently waiting for this episode. Both Jonathan and I got sick after a trip to Disney, and neither of us really felt up to cottywampling.